and welcome to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and prison abolition. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Wilson. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Aaron Corbett, founder and CEO of Second Chance Educational Alliance Incorporated, a community-based prison education program in Connecticut. SCEA aims to provide formerly incarcerated men and women with the tools necessary to become fully engaged and contributing citizens. Erin has spent almost two decades in education access in a number of roles, with experience in independent school admission, enrichment programs, and post-secondary financial aid. Her commitment to expanding post-secondary opportunities for all populations has served as the foundation of her professional endeavors. We talked about the benefits of post-secondary education for people in prison, the challenges associated with developing a prison education program, teaching without access to technology in a world where technology plays such a vital role in our lives, why higher ed in prison attracts people that fetishize prisoners and are invested in notions of saviorism, and how the teaching of authors like James Baldwin are transformative for some students. We conclude our conversation with Aaron's thoughts on what higher education policy needs to focus on, including what questions to ask. Please join us for this delightful and inspiring conversation with Dr. Aaron Corbett. Welcome. Thank you. Lovely to have you here. Um, I've been looking forward to this conversation for uh, months now. So um, <laughs> it definitely feels that way. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited. Well, it, it is. It's like the end of February already. And, you know, we talked about doing this back in December. So, yeah. Um, like, can you believe that? I, like, I can't. I'm, I'm flummoxed right now. <laughs> right? Right. So um, just to, you know, kick us off here, why don't you tell us a, a little bit about the work that you do and you, how you came to do this work? Sure. So my days are spent as the CEO of Second Chance Educational Alliance Incorporated. We are an education-based re-entry uh, program. We are the only one in the state of Connecticut that is not attached to, um, or born out of one of the local higher ed institutions. So we are community-based versus um, uh, institutionally funded. And so what that does is it gives us a little bit of flexibility in terms of the classes that we are able to offer to incarcerated students in the state of Connecticut. And it gives our instructors a lot of autonomy in terms of designing their own syllabi that they teach over the course of 15 to 16 week semesters. When we started in fall of 2016, our courses were not for credit. So students were volunteering for these classes and doing the same kinds of work, assignments, reading as students who would be getting the class for credit, but we didn't have the necessary partnerships with higher ed institutions to offer classes for credit. About, I want to say, maybe like a year and a half ago, we met a representative from Southern New Hampshire University, Dr. Lowell Chris Matthews, um, who really took an interest in our program and kind of talked it up on the SNHU campus and really was instrumental in bringing about our program, or the more recent iteration of our program now, 
where we are able to offer credits towards a bachelor's degree in business administration with the degree being conferred by Southern New Hampshire University. So we have currently about 30 students in our degree granting program, and then we have about 50 or so students in our continuing education program where they take classes, students take classes not to credit in philosophy, economics, network design, biology, physics. Um, we were going to offer Spanish, but uh, the teacher didn't follow through. So we won't be able to offer Spanish. <laughs> but it's, a, it's definitely a wide variety of courses we're able to offer. Most of our students are at um, McDougal Walker Correctional Institution, which is a level four or five facility. So it's like a max supermax. And mm -hmm. we teach, our, our programs are in the McDougal building, which is the level four building of the complex. Um, we also run a class on the weekends in the Cybulski Community Reintegration Center, which is a level two, so it's, a, it's like a pre-release facility. And last semester, we were able to offer a class in a level three facility, Carl Robinson. Fantastic. Wow. I, di I didn't know all of that. I mean, I knew some of it, but I didn't know all of that. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so how did you get into this work? So it's it's really like kind of haphazard, I guess. And at, at sometimes I think about it and I'm just like, I don't even understand it myself. Um, so <laughs> like a lot of other folks, I think um, I have friends and family members who either are currently incarcerated or have been incarcerated at one point in time. And so, like, the ties to the carceral state are, are pretty personal. Um, and I had a cousin who did 12 years, um, who ended up taking his life a few years ago. And it just made me think or made me start thinking about how the help that he needed or the help that, like, right from the outside that I thought he would have needed to better um, acclimate to post-release post life, I think he just didn't get. And I didn't have the language to kind of ask the right questions to make sure that he was getting access to um, some of the resources that he may have been eligible for to help ease that transition. And so, you know, I, I see a lot of what I do as like being that person for someone else who can kind of help provide some resources to at least ease some parts of these transitions. It's also like tricky because McDougal Walker is a maximum security facility and so folks aren't getting out for a really, really long time. But I think that the, the value in being able to offer education in that environment is not only that people who have longer sentences, you know, many are still going to get out and because they have had longer sentences, the length of time that they have been away from society has increased, which means that you're increasingly now going to see the folks who are getting those 20, 30, 40 year sentences from the war on drugs getting out now. Mm -hmm. And that means that they have spent a lifetime not introduced to technology in the way that it has become so embedded in our regular lives. And it takes a lot to reacclimate to a society that looks and feels entirely different 
than the society you left when you were initially incarcerated. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you kind of anticipated my, you know, my next question there. Um, and maybe we can, you know, um, talk about it a little bit more. But, uh, you know, I wanted uh, to ask you, what, in your view, are the benefits of a post-secondary education for justice-involved people? Um, and, you know, you've already touched on um, on that, but I'd love to hear more. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of the benefits of, of a college education, you know, are the same for free world students and students who are incarcerated. When we think about the ways that we kind of learn and improve upon our critical thinking and analytical thinking mm -hmm. in the classroom. And so those things are the same. Of course, that's assuming, you know, you're in a, a quality program, both in the free world <laughs> and in the yeah. prison, because that's not always a guarantee. Um, but provided that it is a quality program, those same kinds of personal benefits stand no matter what the, you know, the residency uh, circumstances for the particular student. I think we're now starting to see in society more attention paid to how a college education can, ben can benefit someone with a record because we're seeing research, whether it's the RAND research from 2013 and 2018, whether it's research that other folks are, are putting out that for those who participate in educational programs while they are incarcerated, they tend to have better post-release outcomes related to employment and decreased chances or decreased likelihoods of recidivism. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just makes common sense to, to offer these programs um, from an individual perspective. It makes sense from a quality of life perspective for once someone gets out and being able to find gainful employment. It also makes, you know, economic sense. A lot of folks are concerned about the amount of money we spend incarcerating people, um, and rightfully so, because that is money that could be going to, you know, education for people everywhere. Um, but what we have also come to understand is that the dollars spent educating someone who is incarcerated are dollars that often pay for themselves in terms of a return on investment. And so those students who have taken part in those programs are less likely when released to um, return to custody. So we're saving money that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Win-win all the way around. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, something that um, came up when we interviewed um, Mariam Kaba um, a couple of years ago now um, was that, you know, these things are going to cost money. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, we shouldn't be shy about the fact that, you know, on the road to abolition that we're going to have to spend money. Right. <laughs> and it's right. like, what, what are you spending money on? Right. right. It, the the question and you know what do you want um that money to do but yeah i, I think that that's um you know a, a critical component of uh of this overall um this overall thing uh mm -hmm. you know that we're talking about here today um so what are some of the challenges um that you've encountered uh in you know 
developing a program, teaching inside? Um, what are some of the things that, you know, you feel um, could be made easier? Yeah. Um, so obviously <laughs> access to, uh, to funding to keep the program running is a huge challenge. Like I said, we are a community-based organization, and so mm -hmm. we therefore don't have, like, the Title IV access or, you know, the, the broad range kind of network-driven access to private donations that higher ed institutions have. And so we find that from the donations that our supporters make, we rely very heavily on those and everything goes to uh, the program costs, basically. Um, mm -hmm. So it's buying books and notepads and making copies at Staples. Like the people at Staples know me pretty well right now. Um, oh, and they, they know when my semesters start, they're like, we'll see you next week. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that's always, you know, a challenge. I think programmatically it can be a challenge to just make sure that the, the quality and rigor of instruction inside is the same as it is outside. And outside you have access to many, many, many things in terms of like manipulatives and teaching aids and and things like that and libraries, databases, all of that, journals, all the single thing that like makes the education more accessible to people outside is mostly not present inside correctional facilities. Like there are a few exceptions across the country. I know Iowa has a fairly um, liberal uh, technology policy that has worked really well for them and. California has a lot of flexibility there as well, but they are the anomalies. You know, they and others that have tech policies are the anomalies um, and not the norm. And so you are essentially stripping down, if you are an instructor, you have to strip yourself of all of the tech crushes you might have, all of the, the, the tech aids you might use, and it is really you, the students, and a whiteboard and some handouts and you have to make it engaging have a whiteboard like you know yeah, yeah. That I not where it's a blackboard and chalk and exactly <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. or just or just a pencil and paper because a lot of facilities won't even allow you to take in pens right right and right. all of these things have to be you know cleared beforehand so you can't right. You know, you're not allowed to just show up and say, you know, like you can't just spontaneity and creativity are lacking, um, you know, or, or basically extracted from the entire process. So you really have to adjust your um, your teaching to exactly. to this um, to this environment and become creative in other ways, because it's not like you can just pop something on a flash drive and walk in and say, oh, okay, so there's this thing, or pull something right. up on YouTube, you know, that you found interesting or whatever. Um, right. Those things aren't there. So I, I just wanted to, you know, get into that so that folks really um, have a sense for um, the the level of not having technology <laughs> inside, right? The, the lack yeah, of it. Yeah, it's a lot. And the, the clearance processes can, uh, not can, 
they certainly vary from state to state, and the extent to which that clearance process for the materials is timely also varies from state to state. So we have been fortunate in that our um, our contact at McDougal um, gets these things through for us in a really timely fashion. And so we're not having to have the long kinds of waits that I know other instructors mm -hmm. in other states and other programs are mm -hmm. having to have. And so it's, it, it's fortunate, like we are fortunate that we have him there, but I feel like access to that kind of like professionalism and um, expedient kind of processing shouldn't be something, again, that is the anomaly. Exactly. I think it should certainly be the expectation because it just allows things to run smoother mm -hmm. and for students to have as much access to learning materials or, you know, critical learning materials as they possibly can. Um, it certainly does. The process itself certainly um, has some limitations in that, like you were saying, if something happens necessarily on like the spur of the moment in like in terms of like a current event, then bringing in material for that is not always something that's guaranteed to be able to happen in a facility in a classroom. And so that can certainly impede like an entrepreneurship course or um, uh, like an economics course that's talking about the rise and fall of the stock market where you're having to look at things every day. Yeah. Um, so those sorts of things are are part of the, the challenges. But I will say that, you know, while we have certainly had a lot of those challenges, like we seem to have lots of problems with rosters um, in, in our program, but we have been able to get things cleared pretty quickly. And so, you know, we're just like, I mean, thank God for small favors. Right. Right. But I have also noticed that from the perspective of an instructor, you know, I, um, I've had to work really, really hard at refining my instructional methodology in the absence of technology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so when I talk about using tech as a crutch, a lot of that just comes from my own experience of having used technology as a crutch in yeah. a classroom or in a presentation and overly relying on a PowerPoint or overly relying on a, a poll everywhere or something that's, you know, tech interactive. And I've had to work really hard at building lessons that can sustain the weight of just being in front of a classroom with, you know, people who also want to be engaged the same way free world students want to be engaged, yeah. but who also understand the limitations of the environment. Yeah. But I mean, and I think that, you know, the, this is something that the institutions control, right? Because the institutions are in a way um, setting the tone for the kind of pedagogy that is possible in right. that space, right? right? So, you know, something that um, came up in, in my course um, this summer, I was teaching in a pre-college program, I was teaching uh, Intro to Africana Studies this uh, past summer. And uh, the students in that program had to turn in their cell phones or they had their cell phones confiscated um, for the entire day. 
right? Talk about carceral logics. And this was not in a prison. This was on a college campus. Let me be right. clear about that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and here I am talking about, you know, the, the, the early days of, you know, the Black student movement and this fight to get um, black studies into the academy. And one of the, you know, core principles was that, you know, we would keep up to date on the technology like that. Mm -hmm. We need to know what is happening in the world and access to technology is a part of that. So here yes. I am in a course teaching mostly black and Latinx students without access to <laughs> this technology. And I'm like, right. Un you know, like it was, breathtakingly unbelievable to me that this was actually happening while well, it was 2019 at the moment. And I'm saying, okay, so if I mention a word or you come across something in the text that you're not familiar with, it would be helpful for you to look it up, you know, right then and there. Like mm -hmm. no one carrying around a dictionary, a hard copy of a dictionary anymore. You either Google it or, you know, you Google it. Like yep. that's, that's what you do. So then we had, then I had to thematize that and fold that into, you know, it, it became a critique of the current academy, mm -hmm. <laughs> tying it back to the historical, you know, nature of the academy. I'm like, who is really benefiting from that, right? Because I don't right. see, you know, I don't see technology, um, at least in my classroom, as a distraction. Um, if you need a tablet and you know, what have you, uh, there are a lot of valid reasons why people need to have access to those things mm -hmm. in a classroom. And, you know, it's it's also, it, speaking of access, it is about accessibility because I had a lot yes. of students um, over the years who, you know, need the PowerPoint for whatever reason. And it's yeah. not my job to say, well, you know, this thing over here, you know, <laughs> isn't... It, it, <laughs> It's somehow not a good thing to do or to have if it's helpful to some of the people in the class. Like, right. you know what I mean? And and so anyway, we could talk about, you know, pedagogy and, and the issues there. But all of that is is gone. Like you really stripped of these things um, when you're teaching inside. Right. Mm -hmm. For the most part, but with the yeah. exceptions that you mentioned. So that's um, that's interesting. Um, what are some of the most rewarding things uh, that you found about teaching inside and, you know, obviously not uh, refraining from, you know, the kind of fetishizing of prisoners that um, seems to be so prevalent or the kind of saviorism um, that seems to be prevalent for a lot of people who go um, in, into prisons to teach? I don't, I don't think we talk about that publicly enough. We definitely do not because I don't feel that a lot of people even recognize that for what it is. I think that in this in this space, we are, and when I say we, I mean kind of like the, the critical pedagogues that are looking at these kinds of opportunities as ways to provide students with information about how to essentially kind of deconstruct and reconstruct their um, their physical realities, their social realities, the political realities in which they exist, and employing that kind of critical analysis demands that you understand 
the power structures inherent in this kind of exchange, the, the kinds of power structures and power dynamics that despite us wanting to dismantle them, they are still very much present, right, because this is still a prison. And so understanding the power dynamics that are always there also demands an understanding of how some people come into these spaces to um, to feel better about themselves. Mm. And so this is a, a personal pursuit for them to feel good as opposed to a personal pursuit of justice and helping others facilitate their own empowerment. You see what I mean? Like there's, yeah. there's certainly a, a difference between how one enters into the carceral space. Um, I think that in terms of the rewarding pieces, there are so many. And they're, and they're the small, like, fleeting moments that you would just never catch in any kind of qualitative research endeavor because they're those quick moments in the classroom that make every teacher feel fulfilled for, with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of those moments literally happened last night. I have a student in my entrepreneurship class, and he is also in the psychology class that I teach, and those classes meet on Tuesdays back-to-back. And when he first started with us um, in the fall of 2017, uh, he, bless his heart, was so over it, like just wasn't engaged in class, was having side conversations, rarely handed in homework, and, you know, we had some conversations early on, like if you don't want to be in the program, you don't have to be in the program, and that's fine. But if you're going to be in this space, you are going to help create this learning community and not take away from it. Mm-hmm. And um, what also happened, because this is also something that I don't think we talk about, the the folks that he was kind of having these side conversations with in the class dropped out of the program. And mm-hmm. he stayed. And once they dropped out of the program, because teachers don't ever want to talk about the fact that in prisons, there are still students who can be disruptive to your class. Mm-hmm. Like, teaching inside of a prison, does, like you're, it's not always going to be the, the, the fantasy of, oh, my gosh, thank you so much, Master, for coming in and teaching me and all. Like, that's not real. You're going to have students who are oh over everything that you have to say, and they're there for whatever reason that is not related to being educated. And there's no judgment in that. It's exactly. just a fact. Exactly. And, you know, because it wasn't like I went and got my doctorate because I enjoyed learning. I went and got my doctorate because I knew it would help me command more money in the future. So mm-hmm. people come to education and come to classrooms for a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. And so when these students in particular who had come not for reasons that allowed them to be contributing class members, um, when they left, this other student, like, you could just, he became a totally different person and he started doing his work he came up to me he's like doc I I think I need to take the English class over because I didn't really do as well as I know I could I really need the help with writing and so he's had this 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 trajectory of like starting from I don't really want to be here I just kind of signed up because and now he's wanting to retake the class that he's already taken 
and really apply himself in a way that maybe he had not applied himself before. And so last night, he was, uh, the, the entrepreneurship class had finished, and we were waiting for the psychology class, and they were going to have a quiz. They had had a quiz the previous week, and everyone felt that they had not done well, and so there was just this general, like, somber mood <laughs> before yeah. class starting. They were like, oh, these quiz grades are coming back. So I just happened to, like, see him, you know, just sitting down, very quiet, not talking to anyone. So I walked over. I'm like, hey, you know, what's going on? What you reading? And he just, like, opened his, his the pages that he was looking at, and they were all of his notes, like, beautifully highlighted. Things were organized. He was like, man, Doc, I'm just studying because I know that I can do better than what I did on the quiz last week. Like, I've been studying really hard all week because, like, I know you believe in me and I believe in myself. And I'm like, inside, I'm like, oh, my God. But outside, I'm like, <laughs> yes, you can do it. Yes, that is so great. I'm so proud of you to see you come along all of this way. And inside, I'm like, ah, finally. <laughs> so, you know, like, it's stuff like that that, like, I I wish that I could capture in some sort of way, but you can't bring any electronics in to record anything. So, you know, it's those things that that keep me going, and they happen all the time. Yeah. Um, where, you know, in one class I taught, I taught an English foundations course, and um, like an English Lit and Comp Foundations course. And in that course, I teach James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, which is like my second all-time favorite book. My first right. all-time favorite book is Song of Solomon by the Queen, Toni Morrison. Um, mm-hmm. And so we're reading The Fire Next Time, which is a relatively short book, but I, I think encapsulates a lot of what um, Baldwin just kind of brought to our world. And one student just seemed to seemed a little bit withdrawn in the class on that particular day. And he, he's a student who, you know, was always kind of talkative and contributing, et cetera. And so I'm like, hey, you know, what are your thoughts? And, and how are you seeing Baldwin's um, argument? And he was just like, I just feel like our lives were so similar. And maybe if I had known who James Baldwin was when I was a kid, I may not have been here. Wow. Yeah. And I was just yeah. like, oh, yeah. gosh. Yeah. You know, and again, on the outside, you have to be like, you know, yes, um, we come to certain authors and certain readings at certain times for certain reasons. And, you know, I, I can't say why you did not know about James Baldwin earlier on, but let's, you know, talk about how his writing is impacting you now. Let's talk about, you know, all of these other things to try to, like, not dwell in the fact that we have an education system, oftentimes a public education system, that does a tremendous disservice to students in urban and rural areas, that does a disservice to black, brown bodies all of the time. And when you're teaching inside, you see a lot of the the byproducts of that. You know what I mean? Like you see you see the impact of these, like, hideously failed policies that have failed so many people. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, sometimes you feel like you're just, it's like you're Sisyphus where every time you push the rock up the hill a little bit, it falls back down. Comes back down. Um, Yep. 
And so you feel like, oh, I'm making progress here, da 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 but then something happens and you're like, okay, maybe not as much progress. <laughs> um, but you just, you start over again because you know that that's what you have to do. Yeah. I want to, I want to go back to something you said um, a couple minutes ago about, you know, just like having to quell your enthusiasm or filter that. Um, and I, and I want to push back on that a little bit because yeah. something that, you know, um, it, I don't do <laughs> and right, not because, yeah. I'm not pushing back on it because I don't do it and saying, Oh my God, Aaron, you have to do this or whatever. <laughs> Um, not, at, not at all, but I felt like, you know, the, the people who taught me how to teach back in the day, you know, and I've been teaching for over 20 years now, I think this is like my 22nd year of teaching, 21st year, I've lost track, but it's been over 20 years, right? And in the early days, um, you know, I felt like I had to model a lot of the folks that were around me and critical pedagogy wasn't something that any of these people were talking about at all. Like that right. was a term that I came to much later, but, you know, um, taking folks like Henry Giroux and um, Bell Hooks and these folks seriously, and I know you know these folks, you know, so I'm just having the conversation and not yeah. criticizing your your teaching at all. So I just want to be clear about that. Um, you know, like I found it really fucking liberating to just say, okay, I don't need to have this facade because now I'm having to think about, you know, what my, you know, how I'm going to present in a particular way. And what is the most, what is it that I'm trying to do? Right. What am I trying to bring into this space? Um, can I bring my most authentic and genuine self into this space? And what would that look like? And how will that how will that help with you know everything else that I'm doing right? So you know, and I'm not saying that that's a perfect um, perfect approach. I know it works for me. Um, I know it's worked for me for a very long time, and that I've refined my thinking. And you know, there are things obviously that you know I don't say or won't do in a classroom. Um, but I also find it super liberating in a lot of ways, uh, especially, you know, I teach writing, um, I've taught writing for a very long time. And for many of the texts that my students are, are reading, they have to, they risk something of themselves, right? And I want right. to show them that I'm also risking something, right? So if Absolutely. I'm self-disclosing and putting things out there, and I'm like, you know, if, if someone's pissed like i i want to make sure that they understand i'm pissed too right right <laughs> that <laughs> if there's something where we're going to all be like super joyful and excited i i just i feel like it's it's just one less thing for me to have to bring in um particularly if we're in you know talking about being in that in that space being inside i don't know i don't know if you have you know if you have thoughts on that dr right. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think um, like there's there's certainly a lot to unpack in that. I think there are kind of two things that stick out to me. One is overall how um, how we present ourselves, and then like number in terms of how we are with I don't know maybe 
staff in the facility, et cetera, versus how also we present ourselves with students inside the classroom. And mm-hmm. so I think one of the one of the great things that's been really liberating for me is that I don't have to do a lot of that switching between mm-hmm. those two groups. And so it's been like that is one of those layers that I have not had to kind of fiddle with <laughs> because yeah. Yeah. Like, I, like I need to spend my energy and my time teaching and putting together bomb lessons without a computer. <laughs> and wow. so, you know, I have other things that I need to do. And my students also, like they, like, they have seen me in some pretty difficult situations just as, as we're trying to build this program and just, like, seeing when I'm frustrated that a meeting hasn't gone well or seeing that I'm frustrated because, you know, something has gone wrong or seeing me frustrated or seeing me excited when things go really well. And so we've been able to create that kind of relationship um, faculty to student that allows me to bring my fullest self into the classroom, despite the classroom itself kind of being in this oppressive space. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think like the... And I apologize, I just got into my car, so it may sound a little, like, weak in a minute. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it might be like, rear, rear, rear. Um, I think in that moment with that particular student, and even with the other student in the classroom with James Baldwin, you know, I always have just this internal monologue happening at all times. Mm-hmm. And so part of that internal monologue is this, like, exorbitant, emotional expression at like all things and so but I'm able you know to say and this is what I said to the student yesterday I was like I am really proud of you and I just want to make sure that you hear that directly from me like I see the work that you're putting in I see the changes that you have made and I just, I could not be prouder that you have stayed in this program and are giving 150%. And, and being able to, to feel comfortable, you know, saying that, but also understanding that for some students, it is going to mean something very different to hear that from an authority figure than it will mean for other students. It's also important to just kind of understand and compartmentalize. Absolutely. 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 No, I'm, I'm so glad you said that. Um, I, uh, I want to go back to, you know, the, um, the Baldwin, uh, essay, right. Um, because I've read one of your, um, one of your students essays on, uh, Baldwin's the fire next time. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to link to that essay in, in the show notes, but, uh, it was the, the essay from 2017 And at the end of the essay, the student wrote, and I quote, I chose to write what I have because I am personally pursuing the idea that economics has played a key role in not only manifesting racism, but perpetuating its existence. Whether Baldwin intended that kind of interpretation of his work, I don't know. Maybe I missed the boat completely. I know one thing, the fire next time has made me think opened my eyes and given me hope. Thank you for sharing it with me, end quote. And I read that and I was just like, 
Wow. Yeah. Like that is so yeah. beautiful. And I was wondering, what was your reaction when you read it? Oh man, like that. I'm so glad you found that. So that was from uh, one of the students that I had in Rhode Island, the um, the place where I was fortunate enough to teach with a blackboard. And um, it was a, like, it was, (laughs) it was an entrepreneurship course. And this one student was just demonstrated that he had a very particular interest in certain kinds of literature. So he was always reading literature about, like, black liberation and freedom and all of these kinds of things. And so I just was like, hey, so here's a book (laughs) that I think you might like. And he was like, I don't know, maybe one of maybe three or four white students in the class. And so I was like, here, you know, it's one of my favorite books. Love it, love it, love it. And so he brought that reflection back to class the following week, and he was like, I just had to respond to what that book did for me. And so I'm like, okay, you know, I went on with class or whatever, and then I read it later, and I was like, okay, I'm crying. I'm not crying, you're crying. Um, because, like, when I read The Fire Next Time for the first time, that is literally the same reaction I had. Like, I didn't feel like my command of the English language was good enough to mm-hmm. communicate how life-changing that particular book is. Um, and so, like, I related to, like, everything that he was saying, and and I think that there's an added layer to his his knowledge and kind of awakening, again, as a white student reading this work by James Baldwin, of how economic situations, privileged white people, you know, understanding how white supremacy, white patriarchy works, and understanding how he benefits, even as someone who was incarcerated, how he benefits from that kind of system, and having him just kind of working through how it all plays out because he has now had access to this book was one of the, like, the greatest things to behold. Like, I love it when students struggle with a piece because it means that they are engaged with the reading. I had one student who um, is in our program at McDougall Walker, and I was like, I feel like you probably need to read some Reza Aslan. And I think I had just just finished reading No God But God. Um, I hadn't read Aslan's book, like, in any sort of chronological order. And I was like, here's No God But God, and here is um, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. And so they were both these, like, academic takes on the origin stories of Christianity and Islam. And this student read both of the books, wrote a seven-page reflection about just, like, how he felt and what he learned in those two books, in addition to doing his homework for class for the week. And so you have these moments where you're able to um, help students challenge themselves and their own thought processes in ways that you just hadn't imagined, right? You, you just, you feel like maybe a book has changed your life or changed your perspective, changed your outlook, 
and you just want someone else to be able to share that with. And when they have the same sort of life-changing moments, you're like, wow, this is great. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, and it's so profound, right? Because, you know, um, I almost assigned the fire next time um, in a class that I'm uh, currently teaching. And I chose mm-hmm. to go different um, Baldwin text is message to teachers. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's like when I asked my uh, my students, they had all read the fire next time. So I was c- glad that I, you know, hadn't assigned it. And it's like, obvious, whatever, we, we probably would have gotten different, you know, things out of it. But, you know, as, as I read that essay, right, um, mm-hmm. there were several things that happened. One, I didn't know that you, this was in the context of an entrepreneurship course that this student had read. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, I can't imagine. um, (laughs) And, you know, I have an undergrad degree in business. I can't can't imagine what it would have been like for me as an undergrad to have a professor give me Baldwin to read. Like that would have had such a profound impact on me then. I mean, I come to Baldwin later, you know, um, Mm -hmm. after, um, after undergrad. But also the fact that the way that the student is writing, right, um, really does mirror the way that Baldwin writes, right? Yes, right, exactly. Not only that, but, you know, um, Baldwin's concern with, um, you know, and he attends to that space in between the personal, right, as well as the Mm -hmm. broader kind of historical context, the political, and for him, identity matters a great deal, right? For Baldwin, right. identity matters. And then I, I'm reading the student's essay, and I'm like, he's talking about his own identity, right? And it's yep. like, there's so many different layers. And, you know, something I, I do, because this is what struck me about that piece, um, a lot of things did, but um, is that, you know, I encourage my students to be in conversation with the text, with the author, yeah. to interrogate the text, um, to feel as though they can talk to the author. And mm-hmm. this entire essay is an example of that, which is why I'm, yeah. you know, basically photocopying it and giving it to my students. Um, to because I want them, I want them to see that they can question the author, they can disagree with yeah. the author that they can think about their own writing as a process of inquiry, that this mm-hmm. is something that, you know, you don't have to have it all worked out. You don't need to have right. all of the answers. And that, you know, it's more important to refine your questions than it is right. to <laughs> try to come up with the answer. And I was just yeah. like, that piece really... I mean, obviously it resonated with me and that's why, you know, I was like, oh my God, I can't imagine how you felt when you read that and you were teaching that class. So thank you for, and and thank you for sharing that. I I mean, honestly, thank you for sharing that because I think that that's a good, and you know, um, we're going to link, we're going to provide the links to your blog and stuff so that folks can go and read all the brilliant things that you've uh, written and that you've shared there. Don't laugh. Don't laugh because you are dropping gems and sharing things with folks that they need um, They need to read. Absolutely. I think right. I say that, you know, um, you know, from the heart. Absolutely. Um, and 
what's really interesting about that is there's um, another student who wrote a letter to James Baldwin that's also on that same blog where he does, in fact, disagree with some of, you know, Baldwin's points. And it's just, like, I, I so wish that those two students could be in conversation with Absolutely. each other about Baldwin. Like, Absolutely. that's some of the stuff that, that we, that technology would allow us to do in a free world campus, but that we can't do in, in, in a confined campus. Absolutely. And that's it, it, not so much the um, technology piece, you know, or having a discussion board, but something that um, we're doing in, in one of my courses is um, working on publicly reading your work, right? Not for critique, right. but learning how to share the work because most writers want to share what they write. Some people don't, and that's okay too. Um, but getting in the habit of, you know, just saying, okay, this is what I wrote. My thoughts are not, you know, complete on this. I have some work to do. I mean, that's really the kind of intellectual work that we all do when we go to conferences and we're presenting papers. Like most of that stuff exactly. is stuff we're trying to work out. It's not stuff that, you know, we're like, oh, we have it figured out. I mean, you know, it's like if you listen to David Harvey. I mean, shit, David Harvey's been teaching capital for what, 40 years? And it's like, and he still has questions, yeah. right? He yeah. still has questions he's trying to work out um, right. in that text and things that, you know, he struggles with or, you know, trying to understand or make sensible. And I think that that is a lesson for all of us, that it's not just something that, um, you know, some students are doing because I feel like that does the the students a disservice and getting them right. to understand, you know, I, and I don't know if you do this, but I'd love to hear, um, you know, your thoughts and, and what you do um, about this, but I don't teach my class any differently than I would if on main campus. Right. And right. I don't know right. um, if you're where you are with that. Yeah, I, um, there is there's no difference between what I do in the classroom inside versus what I do outside. Um, again, like I outside, I might indulge in a a little like in a prezi, <laughs> um, and you know might have a little animation going on or some sort of video that I can play. But fundamentally, the questions that I ask are the same, and what any student of mine who has taken my English Lit and Comp Foundation course knows is that we center our semester around one guiding question, and that is, what is the true nature of mankind? Are we, you know, are we, as Golding implies, just a bunch of savages who have managed to put on some nice clothes and create some rules for ourselves, but when we strip all of that away, you know, like in Lord of the Flies, we just become animals. Or, you know, are we not savages? Are we inherently good? Do we look at kind of life from this humanist perspective of unconditional positive regard? And it's just, you know, kind of the circumstances that arise in our lives that start to negatively color how we view ourselves and each other. And so that's the same question that I would pose on a free world campus and and expect the same kinds of conversations that I have in my um, prison classroom. 
Mm -hmm. Because I think that the questions are equally as important for everyone. Like, it's a question that we all need to be asking ourselves, like, whether we're looking at individual behavior, whether we're looking at behavior by groups of people, whether we're looking at the behavior of, I don't know, our government, you know, what is the true nature of who we are and how does that guide us in the actions in which we partake? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that because the students that I teach inside tend to be older than kind of the quote-unquote traditional age college student or the college student who has seamlessly transitioned from high school to undergrad, you know, these guys have lived some lives. And yeah. it is that, that life experience that helps them contextualize a lot of the more complex ideas that Baldwin presents, that Morrison presents, that George Orwell presents. You know what I mean? It, it allows them to look at things far more deeply, I think, than mm-hmm. um, than other students might. I think they see a lot of parallels in some of the literature to their current lives that they're able to use to help make sense of things. Um, and I feel like that's something that they're able to use to their advantage, um, which is helpful. It's empowering. It's empowering. Yeah. It's it's something yeah. that, you know, in terms of um, their overall life experience, right? Um, right. Like you can see yourself in the text. You can see yourself. Right. Um, and, you know, and it's easier um, oftentimes to talk about really difficult things when you're talking about it through a character um, or right. something that, you know, someone wrote. Right. As opposed to saying, well, I blank, blank, blank. Right. It's it's, so it gives you it gives you that space, but it also can be really revelatory. Right. Um, And it's not that this happens in every single class. It's not that, you know, it's not without struggle or that um, you don't have to have a sense and and constantly evaluating and questioning, you know, what it is that you're doing, not in terms of self-doubt, but in terms of being critical about your approach and what it is that you're that you're doing, that those things are really all intertwined and you bring that right. into the classroom. Um, right. I know we're coming up on uh, on the hour here, but I wanted to ask, and I know you and I could talk forever. Um, yeah. But I wanted to ask you if there's anything else that you want to share um, with with us today that, you know, um, yeah, that you just want to put out there. Um, I think that the next, the thing that we need to pay the closest attention to now, if we look at higher ed and prison specifically as a field, is we, I think we need to look more closely at this question of quality and what that looks like for inside programs. I think that depending on who you ask and kind of who's funding them, the answers might look one particular way or look another particular way. But I think that we need to have really honest conversations about quality that don't continue to privilege programs that have large endowments or have super gobs of money because then we are simply recreating the resource hierarchy of higher ed, which is a problem 
and anyone that does hire a policy can talk for eons about what those problems are that are caused. Um, but when we privilege those programs that have more money, you dismiss and marginalize the small programs, the community-based programs that have been doing this work unfunded but have been doing amazing work. And that oftentimes provide the models that these larger, more resource programs build upon without giving the due credit. And so Absolutely. I think that that kind of conversation needs to be had in a more nuanced way with more, one, more representation of people of color who run programs, two, more representation of currently incarcerated students in all kinds of programs, and three, formerly incarcerated students from all kinds of programs. Um, I think the conversation has been dominated right now um, by a particular set of voices that are well-resourced and are not always reflective of the communities that are being served. And so I think we need to be really explicit and deliberate about expanding uh, the reach of that kind of conversation. Absolutely. Um, so on that note, we'll have you back. <laughs> With, yeah. you know, with Dr. Michelle Jones, uh, student yeah. Dr. Jones, right? And yeah. uh, I already have several other people in mind for that conversation. So there yeah. will be follow-up uh, to this. But um, yeah, well, you know, don't get me and Bria on the same conversation because right? it'll be over. Right? I'm like, oh boy, oh boy, it'll be all over. <laughs> just done. Just cut the mic off. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um, I I just I should just hit the record button and just let it run for like an hour and just right. let people just talk. That would be amazing. But um. <laughs> Seriously, folks have no idea, no idea. They could just be flies on the wall and, you know, they, they would be privileged to, you know, to be part of that conversation, to eavesdrop on, on what it would be like. Um, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today um, to, to be here, to share with everyone, um, you know, your wisdom, your energy. Um, it, it's just been delightful. Um, so thank you so much, Erin. You're welcome. Glad to do it. We'd like to thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. We recently launched our new website, www.beyond-prisons.com. There you will find a Beyond Prisons guide for supporting prisoners during a COVID-19 crisis, including a link to downloadable PDFs in small and large print formats. And now that PDF is available in Spanish. There's also a section on mutual aid projects that we update frequently and a list of demands that includes a call for the immediate release of prisoners. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.